Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Something to Talk About. I'm your host, Randy Wartelski, and I thank you so much for joining us in what I'm sure has been a very difficult week for many of you in the tri-state area. We've been hearing stories, personal struggles, and the efforts to rebuild after last week's hurricane. Our hearts, of course, going out today to those who lost their homes, personal items, cars, furniture, photos, sfarim, and to those who remain in the dark this evening, some 10 days after Sandy's touch on land. I've heard the tide rose in Bayswater even before the storm hit. Some people there seeing two feet of water in their basement apartments even before the rain began, and then it rose and rose and rose again. Fish, snakes, eels are among the items you might have found in your home or on the street in front of where you live. Cars washed out to sea, and now furniture is being left for garbage. And then there are other children, some who were forced to walk, even swim the ocean waters that rose on their block as they headed to safety. What a week and a half it's been. This is not a storm our community and the greater tri-state area will soon forget. And what will remain with me are the efforts of people, ordinary people helping others. A community in Silver Spring, Maryland, opening its doors to those from our area, providing busing, food, and housing for Shabbos to those who had nowhere else to go. An organization raising literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy size D batteries, generators, and extension cords for those who are still without power and to aid in the cleanup. And as you heard here in these airwaves, yeshiva students delivering meals to the homebound, many who are elderly, a hot meal on a cold October, November day, meaning more than one can say. The stories of how people are reaching out are amazing. One woman I spoke to said she can't even handle all the bags of clothing that arrived on her mother's doorstep after people heard she lost everything in the storm. Baruch Hashem, she says, we have what's important, our lives, our health, our families, and our community. As we look toward the future and to rebuilding what was lost in our possessions, our homes, and our schools. Teaneck, New Jersey suffered somewhat minor inconveniences as compared to others, but many had to leave home because there was no power. School was off, getting to work impossible, and that was fine for a day or two, but when the week went on and still no power, when school galvanized into action, you'll hear from the principal of Yeshiva Noam in Paramus. Also later, you'll hear from community leader Councilman Ellie Y. Katz and his efforts to not only keep the community informed, but also to get the lights back on. You'll hear him talk about that and why there was free pizza in Teaneck this weekend. We begin with Rabbi Chaim Hagler, not a stranger to these airwaves. Rabbi Hagler is the principal of Yeshiva Noam in Paramus, New Jersey. He's an educator, administrator, and leader. He has a master's degree in education from Azrieli, received smicha from Yeshiva University. And prior to founding Yeshiva Noam, served in educational administration at several schools. And Rabbi Hagler, I know this has been a very hectic week for you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So what has the transition to school been like? How are the kids doing, the teachers? Um, the transition really was, was relatively smooth. Um, I think the fact that people just very much wanted to get back into regular routines um, and to feel a sense of, of normalcy. We spent some time discussing whether we should be doing a lot of special activities when we come back and uh, our feeling for the most part was to just let things be as normal as possible because that's what everybody, the, the students and the teachers, were craving. 
And did you feel that the children were more excited than usual, more tired than usual? I know it, it was very hard to get my kids out of bed that first day back. Um, there was an excitement. There was an excitement in, in the air. Uh, but children were tired. They were a little bit disheveled. They not only were, you know, weren't sleeping properly, um, they didn't have their usual snacks, their usual lunches that they might be bringing. Um, some of the, a lot of the students didn't have their you know, regular supplies, their knapsack, a lot of their books and stuff like that. Um, so it was a little bit of a different feel. But um, for the most part, once they walked through the doors, they kind of clicked into gear and, and picked up a little bit pretty much where they left off. And you would imagine that that is very important for a child to be back in his or her normal routine. Is that, you were sensing that they were just craving that routine again? A hundred percent. That's really what, what they were craving. Um, the routine of school, the routine of, of and, and, and the camaraderie of being with their friends. They miss their friends. Right. Um, and chances to just do the things that, you know, that they normally do, whether it be playing at recess or interacting socially at lunch. So let's bring you back a little bit to last week. First of all, you closed school Monday ahead of the storm. What is that like, the decision to close school, not knowing whether or not, you know, quote, it was worth it to miss a day? What, what was that decision-making process like? It's always a difficult decision for me to, um, to close school. Um, I, I tend to like to wait as long as possible because, um, you know, we want to have school open. But um, by, by Sunday night, they were or even late Sunday afternoon, the Paramus Board of Education had announced that it was closing New York City. Uh, public schools were closed. They were talking about closing the bridges, and they were really you know, projecting it that, you know, that that Monday is just not a time where it's safe for children to be traveling to school and potentially to even being in school. So that became a relatively easy decision on, uh, on late in the day on Sunday. And once we had that information, we felt prudent to, to get it out to the parents a little bit earlier and not wait for Monday morning but it gives families a chance to plan and to uh, set up the day to know that their children are going to be at home. So that, that, that day was probably actually one of the easier days to close. Right. I was going to say that as the week went on, also knowing that you didn't have power in the school, that was an easy decision to make. Did you have a fallback plan? Let's say if power were to come back in school, but most of the community was still out of power, you would have felt like you needed to open school, any, you know, open school for the children did you have a fallback plan about that, or did you yes, just decide definitely. to take it day by day? Well, you know, it was a combination of the two. Um, you know, my philosophy for Yeshiva Noam was that, you know, I didn't want to make any definitive um, decisions the night before. Um, you know, I wanted to leave the flexibility that if power was restored to the school during the night, that we could be opened the next day, um, because if there was power, I thought it would be wonderful for the children to be someplace that, that had lights, that had heat, that, that had functioning bathrooms, that we could provide meals for them. Um, to be inside a warm school for the entire day would be the best thing that we can do for them. And, you know, many times these things do get restored during the night. Right. Um, so we, were, we as a school were, were taking it, you know, that was our, our philosophy. We did inform the parents every evening. We made the effort to inform everybody late in the day, you know, every evening what we were up to, whether at that moment you know, we had electricity in the building or not, and what that meant. And our message constantly each evening was, so what that means for tomorrow is that at this moment, if everything stays the same, we will not be able to have school. But if something changes during the night, we will have school. And we went with a delayed opening. We felt that if we can only let parents know 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning, 
that they were schooled, given the fact that people were so displaced um, that they would need a little bit of extra time to get to school and that we'd go with a delayed opening. Right. So Monday passes, Tuesday passes, and you realize that power's not coming back anytime soon. What did you do next? How did you, you went into action, you provided some sort of school. How did you come to that decision and what did you do? Well, we, we started to see that this was really a situation that, that was, you know, was, was starting to drag on um, and that it was not healthy for, for the children and that they needed to have some you know, semblance of order and some, some normalcy and to have some sort of school. Um, so we started to work on a contingent plan of getting, you know, getting small groups together in people's homes. And what we did is we you know, sent out the word on, on Wednesday that we are aiming on Thursday to have school in people's homes. If you have, and at that point, you know, many of the people did not yet have their, their power restored. It was only you know, later in that day that that started to happen. But if you did have heat and you did have um, lights, can you, could you be able to host a class or potentially two classes, understanding that we wouldn't have full, full attendance? Can you host two classes? Um, and we reached out to our parent body to let us know if, that, if they can host it. And at the same time, we reached out to teachers because they were also displaced, and many of them had to leave the neighborhood as well to find out did we have enough teachers and administrators to cover each of these, each of these groups. Um, and, you know, it was really it was on Thursday that we had kindergarten through eighth grade, every single class, meeting in a home with, a, with sometimes one or two teachers there, um, but it wasn't until Thursday morning that we really started to get the replies that we would have enough teachers and enough homes because that's when people started to started to get power back in their homes. Yeah, and what was the attendance like those days? I would say on Thursday it was probably around, you know, maybe somewhere around 50% attendance. And we did it, we did it for two hours. It was a two-hour block from 12.30 to 2.30. Again, because it was, you know, we knew that we wouldn't be able to get a list out of where everything would be. Um, so we knew that we had to do it a little bit later in the day to give people a chance to plan. Um, but we did it 12.30 to 2.30. And as I said, it was kindergarten through eighth grade. Every single class had a place to go with either a teacher and an administrator. Um, and we had about a, probably around 50% attendance. And what was the feedback that you heard from families about that decision to go ahead and try to provide some school for the kids? Very appreciative. Um, parents were, were extremely, extremely appreciative. Um, they, they just really understood that this was something that their children needed. Their children were eager to go. They were happy to be there. Um, it gave them a, a structure for the day. It gave the parents, you know, some structure for their day and some chance to get things done that they needed to take care of where their children were being looked after and taken care of. Um, and I think it really just lifted the spirits of the, of the children. I think it lifted the spirits of parents. And, and great feedback from teachers. They were just very, very eager to be there and to see their children again and to, to do what they love doing, which is teaching. Right. It certainly is amazing that you got such a positive response from teachers that, that says so much about your teachers, about your faculty, that people were happy and willing to do that in this they were, climate. They were, e- they were eager to do it. And those that couldn't make it, that either didn't have enough gas, that don't live in the neighborhood or couldn't get in, were texting me or, or, you know, trying to get in touch with me saying, look, I don't know if I can make it. Don't count on me. But if I can be there, you know, I'm going to figure out a way. If I can figure out a way to get there, I will be there. But just don't, you know, I'm sorry you can't count on me as one of the teachers in the class. But if I can get there, I will be there. Right. 
And, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that you were in touch with the parents. I know you sent out daily emails and daily phone messages. And one of the things that you said in the messages that was very touching to, to me as a parent in the school, that if you know someone who doesn't have power or who doesn't have cell service, please make the effort to pass this message along. And I did, you know, get messages from a couple of other people who knocked on my door who said, do you know, blah, 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 this was the message. And this is what they said. Was that something that was something that you had planned beforehand, hoping that people would get the message? But what would you have done if you couldn't like if you couldn't send out messages to all the parents? Would you have resorted to a phone chain? Would you have resorted to to doing word of mouth? Well, you know, at this point, we really have a a lot of different um, ways of of getting communication out to parents, and you know, we were hopeful that with you know one of the of the several different ways that we have of getting communication out to parents that the message would get to everybody. And um, we do have a phone, we have, you know, the automatic phone system that calls parents um, and teachers on both their home phone and on their cell phone. We have a Facebook page. Um, we have an email um, that we can send out to everybody, as well as we have our website that if people can get on and check the web, they can go to our website and see updates on our, on our website. But, you know, as you said, you know, at the same time, with all, all of our communications, we're asking people to please check on their neighbors to reach out and to let other people know. In one of the early communications that we sent out, and consistently throughout in all of those communications, um, I included my cell phone number because it seemed that a lot of people were able to text um, but not from their emails. handheld, but not receive or send right. or send emails. So once my cell phone number, if you got one, either a voice shot or you got a you did get an email. You saw it on, on Facebook or on the website, and you saw my cell phone number. Um, I was getting a lot, a lot of texts from parents and teachers checking in, um, sometimes saying, I saw that a call came from Yeshiva Noam, but my phone couldn't pick it up. Right. Can you tell me what's going on? Or I haven't heard anything, you know, what's going on. And uh, texting became, you know, one of, one of the stronger forms of communication. Yeah, I have to say that that was one of the things that also I noticed was very unique about Yeshiva Noam and you as the principal of the school to offer your cell phone number and even your home to families to come and, you know, when, when you got your power restored, you know, come to my house, have some coffee, do your laundry. Were you hearing things from parents along the way that they were appreciative of the efforts that the school was making? Along the way, I did hear that, and you know, since um, since the weekend, I've received dozens of, of um, comments, either emails, primarily emails, but sometimes texts, um, and dozens and dozens of comments of people who are very much appreciative of the communication that they received from the school, of the fact that we were able to pull something together for for Thursday and Friday, and then how we responded once once we got our power back, once we got our electricity back. Um, parents were very very appreciative. I imagine, Rabbi, it must be very daunting to be the head of an institution where so many families rely on you for leadership. What was going through your mind as you watched the storm unfold, as maybe you heard some stories from some of the children of, you know, how they had to be displaced or, you know, what was going on even, even earlier into this week where maybe kids were coming to school where everybody else had power and they didn't. As a leader of that kind of institution, what, what goes through your head? And the first thing is, you know, what can we do as a school from a, from a school perspective that can help the children and that can help the families? That's, that's number one, and that is giving them some sort of school experience, whether it's in a home, whether it's in a school or, or here in school. 
Um, that was the first thing. That was the first, you know, thing that we knew that would be very, very helpful. The second thing was, you know, what can we do as a, as a family, as a larger community, as a Yeshiva Noam community, that we can, you know, um, galvanize our resources and get people in touch with each other um, and being able to help each other and being a resource to, to one another, to families, um, being there for each other. Um, and then, you know, primarily thinking about the children's emotional needs as well, as well as the teachers. We gave a lot of thought of, to the teachers' emotional needs and tried to put some things in place for them as well um, so that they should feel, you know, ready and capable and, 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 and have that inner strength to be able to be there for the children. Right. And along the way also, were you in touch with other schools in the area to see what they were doing, if they were opening, they were closing? What, were schools in the area in touch with each other? Um, Sunday, we had a lot of communication, you know, earlier on, it's always our goal. We, we always try to be in communication, all the schools in the area with regard to school closings, closings. But on Sunday, we had a lot of communication Monday, some communication, but as the week went on, it became very difficult to be in touch with each other when everybody was really so overwhelmed with trying to see what's going on with their, with their individual school and how they can make things work for their school and their, and their community. And what is our school doing now for others who are still in need, maybe locally and beyond students in the school, maybe student families out of our community? What are we as a school, as a school family doing for others who are still in need? We're, we're really, you know, working on, on several fronts. And the um, most pleasing to me, and I'll, I'll elaborate on them in a moment, is that so many of the initiatives came from students themselves. Um, students in our middle school who, you know, came up with the initiatives and, you know, we were just there to support them to give them the infrastructure to put the initiatives together. So the eighth graders um, immediately came up with the initiative yesterday to collect um, um, toiletries and, and socks and, and other things that, um, you know, people that are still without power, that are still displaced, that they would need. And we already started a drive um, yesterday and, and, you know, we're going to hopefully be getting that out to communities like the five towns, like Staten Island, um, getting them those things as quickly as as possible, um, you know. And, um, and then there are, you know, we're working on a financial, collecting financially. Um, that is something that we started earlier in the week as well, asking parents to contribute to different funds. That we'd be a vehicle for parents to bring the funds to us, and we would get to the right places, um, as well as some, you know, individual students that are working on different projects. We have two seventh grade boys that are working on a uh, on, on putting together a basketball tournament. Um, over Thanksgiving weekend that will raise money um, for organizations that are supporting um, people that are victims of the storm. Wow, that's very special. So you're definitely taking care of the kids, but also using this as a teaching moment. Definitely. Definitely. Rabbi, thank you so much. Thank you for your leadership, and thank you for all you do for, for the Yeshivat Noam community and beyond. And thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to go to a short break and be back right after this. Surely, Moti, 
צרפתי. לא מרוקאי, לא אמריקאי, לא רוסי. אני יהודי. Thanks so much for joining us again. This is Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski. Community leaders have been instrumental in helping things get back up and running. And Councilman Ellie Wycats is no different in that effort. 
Councilman Katz has for the past nine years represented the views and concerns of the people that live, work, and shop in Teaneck. He's been a business owner and merchant in the town for the last 10 years and a community volunteer for over 16, including being a member of the Teaneck Community Relations Advisory Board, chairman of the Youth Advisory Board, life member of the Teaneck Volunteer Ambulance Corps, member of the Teaneck Fire Department's Box 54, and many other organizations around town. He served as a councilman for seven years and a deputy mayor for two. One of Councilman Katz's uh, claims to fame is that he has heard from over 3,100 residents, received thousands of emails, and sent out over 15,000 letters to stay in touch with constituents and respond to their concerns. Ellie Katz, thank you so much for joining us today on Something to Talk About. Thank you so much for having me. So what was the state of Teaneck during and after the storm? So I'm somewhat happy to report that uh, as your listeners are uh, tuning in today, that uh, we are 99% back full electric. And um, we, we, thank goodness, Phoenix, New Jersey did not get as devastated, uh, as, as, as horrible of uh, damage like some other communities that you see on the news, we more had the um, frustration of no ha- not having power, not having heat, uh, not having gasoline uh, for our vehicles, um, not having uh, cable or Internet. Uh, so that was, uh, that was our hardship for the most part. There were a few properties that were next to the Hackensack River that did get some flooding into the basement, but... Uh, most part, this was a dry storm, and the damage that was sustained uh, was uh, was uh, more by trees. Uh, there were there were about 150 trees that did fall. Uh, a few houses did unfortunately uh, have a tree fall on them. Uh, a few vehicles we lost, um, but thank goodness no life lost, and uh, we're we're rebuilding. And we, we came together as a community, and and. It, it's funny that you mentioned those uh, items in the beginning about my claim to fame. Um, since, since my bio was written, I've accumulated a list of about 22,000 email addresses, and, and most of them are Teaneck residents. And uh, I've had to send out an email to them six times during the storm. And where were you getting your information from? What were you doing to help move things along during the storm? Oh, so that was a very, That's a very good question, because in this scenario, what I found uh, was the information is key, that residents uh, understood that, that, that they were going to be in the dark, but they didn't really literally want to be in the dark when it came down to information. And, and uh, I was getting my information from daily phone calls with the uh, local utility, which is PSDNG in, in Teaneck, New Jersey. Uh, I was speaking to the supervisor. Uh, I was... Uh, direct communication with our police chief, with our township manager. Uh, I, was out, I was out knocking on doors, visiting um, senior centers. Um, I was also, uh, you know, assessing and, and looking at a lot of the damage, visiting our employees that were working around the clock, our, our Department of Public Works, our police department, our fire department, our ambulance corps. Uh, I myself did not have Internet. Uh, I had a backup generator for my house. So all my communications um, that I did, I had to do from uh, a remote, you know, a 
someone else's house or, or, or the local ambulance squad that had internet and was working on, on generator backup as well for their electricity. I must say that driving around town, and I did take a drive around one evening just to see what was going on outside. It was pretty amazing to see when you talked about the, the employees working, the police had, had put up cones so that traffic could flow where there were no streetlights. That is an amazing operation. Yeah, you know what? At one point, you did, feel, you did feel like one of these towns in the Midwest where you didn't have traffic lights. You know, it was, it was just interesting that the entire township, uh, you know, locations and intersections that ordinarily would have 30,000 vehicles going through it a day, uh, were, were people were yielding to each other without, without traffic lights. Um, so, so it was pretty interesting and amazing to see the community and the way they pulled together. Uh, I mean, yesterday, one of the local uh, synagogues uh, donated pizza for the entire town. Yes, I actually spoke about in, in my earlier intro to you. Oh. I wanted to hear more about that, about free pizza for the whole town. What, what was that all about? Free pizza parties for all Teaneck residents. Being a member and a resident of Teaneck has its benefits. And um, that was one of them. Uh, it, it, people wanted to do, especially the ones that were more fortunate to get their power back early on, uh, I mean, they would communicate with me. They wanted to do more. They wanted to help out. We opened up a, a, what initially started to be as a temporary warming center. Uh, we took one of the schools. We dispatched the police department there. We had some emergency service workers uh, just helping out. But people that wanted electricity, people that wanted heat, people that wanted uh, to recharge their, their, uh, their devices, they came there, they sat around, and then it turned into a place where actually people ended up sleeping. Yeah, what was the turnout like over there? Did you have a lot of people? You know, it was it was it was uh, when I stopped in in the beginning. It was probably about a couple, about fifteen to twenty-five or so uh, people, uh, which was good. And there were also, interestingly enough, volunteers like teachers that came down to do crafts projects with the kids. Wow. Yeah. So, was, uh, so there was something for everyone. Something for everyone. I mean, while I was standing there, uh, people would stop in with bags of Dunkin' Donuts coffee and bags of Dunkin' Donuts donuts and say, you know, we're here to bring this to the warming center. And, you know, what started off as a location where I clearly indicated in my emails that there is no food because the schools were closed as well for a while and they didn't have any food, um, turned into a location that had plenty of food. Right. I want to get back to the power situation for a moment because I know that um, from reading your emails that PSENG said the local utility was working around the clock, but still there was such frustration once 90% of the community was back on that there was still a block here, a block there. Do you think that the utility companies had been doing everything they could? I mean, I heard a story in another town where the utility workers came to work and left in the middle of the job because it just got so cold that they just couldn't be outside anymore, maybe couldn't do their work for whatever reason in the air. Did you find that the local utility in Teaneck really was doing everything that they, that they could at the time? I think that they were doing as much as they could with what they had. I think that they could have had more. I think they could have had more information. I think they could have had 
um, better communications to the residents. Um, you know, I mentioned about a daily phone call with PSENG, the local utility, with the, with the supervisor, uh, with my liaison uh, for governance. Um, and it, it was chock full of information of where they're working and what they're doing and giving the different uh, elected officials an opportunity to vent. And to, but it really wasn't, um, in my opinion, an opportunity for them to take down a list of, of properties and then get it done. I mean, I had one-on-one -on -one time with the supervisor, and he, he made himself available to me. Uh, and I even, even as early as this morning, I sent him an email telling him that there's this one little pocket that still needs to get done, or one little street, or half of a house, or half of a street. Um, but I think based on, you know, they, they brought in all these workers that had, like, like I said in the beginning, PSCNG sent out a notice that they had 1.6 million uh, customers without power. And at the same time, they said that they brought in, brought in 996 uh, additional utility workers from out of state to supplement their 606. So they had 1,500 workers working on 1.5 million problems. Wow. And I imagine I, it's, some, it's just like solving a puzzle. I, yeah, I don't know how they. I don't know how the uh, inner workings of the utilities and the details of their. You know, they have charts. If they have maps. If they have. You know, just point 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 tosses of what what streets they do next. Um, but uh, eventually, everyone gets power. Thankfully, at some point. Thankfully and eventually, but it's a it's a, it's a frustrating road to that to that time. And what did you find was the mood of the people during the storm? For the most part, um, most people were very, very appreciative of getting my email. Um, people felt that it was really, and, and uh, you know, what you're talking about emails at a time when no one's got power, but yet, thank goodness, we've got the smartphone, we have the iPhone, we've got the Droid, the Blackberry, you know, the iPad, the iPod, you know, thank goodness people still have those. And, and uh, but there is, there is segments of the community that does not, you know, when I told you I was driving around, I was knocking on doors and visiting people, you know, they, they, they didn't get any information from anybody. And were there people who just hunkered down and stayed through? Did you, were you, did you have an opportunity to speak to people who just stayed through the storm or did you find that most people went to a, a family or friend who had power? I found that uh, many people um, just—I I found that many people uh, were torn between leaving their personal property and um, going for shelter for them for their personal self. Right, right. As I'm but, sure would be, you know, was the case in every community that experienced a power outage. That that toss-up between: Do I stay here and watch my stuff, or right. do I do something? Do I go somewhere with my kids? Will they'll be warm? And I know families that compromise. I know families that sent the, the, the wife and the kids went to Brooklyn and, and the husband stayed home and, and, and protected the house. Right. And then there were those families who had generators, who spent the entire storm uh, watching the gas and going out with the jerry can to get gas. And then came the gas problem. Yes. What was your experience with the gas issue? You know, when I, when I first day that I saw a line of 60 people 
and red cans in their hands, I couldn't help but just take pictures of that. It was, it, you know, it was nothing. Like I, I, I couldn't even, I, I, like I couldn't even comprehend it. It was just such an, like an, an awesome picture to see all these people lined up with cans. I mean, generators are becoming a lot more popular. Right. Um, the portable ones are certainly the ones that are, are, are that are more out there than not the, than the more expensive uh, hardwired ones into the house. Um, my concern was to make sure that if you did have generators, that it was at least being run safely. Um, people in the beginning, you know, some people didn't know they would stick the generator in their house so that right. it doesn't get rained on. Right. Um, but uh, as you know, that that is. Uh, absolutely very dangerous. Um, but uh, more and more people are, are, are we're managing with generators. Yeah, and I know that at one point, there I don't know if this was everywhere, but some of the gas stations, certainly I just know from people who were there, there was gas, but they were only giving gas to people with, who needed it for their generators and not for people who needed it for their cars. Yeah, it was, it was a real... Um, it was a real, like, you know, I guess different buffet of different, uh, so obviously most stations were closed. 75% of the stations were closed. Um, and then some were open, but only open to emergency services or only open to uh, people with cans or only open to the odds and evens, you know, uh, the way they did that, or only mm-hmm. given, up, given out up to $30 worth of gas, only open, like I found last night, for cash only. Um, I mean, there was real, a really mix of, of how to get gas. I got gas um, the morning before the storm, and that lasted me till about um, Thursday, which was about four or five days. Um, and then I, I was online at the turnpike for one hour and 26 minutes. Wow. And they still had gas when you got to the front of the line? You know, you get nervous that you're going to be that one that pulls up to the pump, and they say, oh, sorry, we're out. You know, like when you're... When you're online at the supermarket, and the lady clicks off the light while you're online there. Yeah, I have to say, my dad waited online in Brooklyn for two hours. He was the tenth car out, and they said, "Up, oh, no gas." Right. That's why I did the turnpike. I did it for two reasons. Number one, I figured that they have probably the biggest spike. But number two is um, they have the most pumps. Meaning, there's always lines, but you know the turnpike is prepared to to manage you know, heavy amount of vehicles. Right. That's why I chose the turnpike uh, for, for, for my fill-up. And there were various apps and ways that people could find out where the gas stations are and how much gas they had. Right. Or, or how, how, what the lines looked like. Right. I, I, I some friends of mine showed me those apps. But until Governor Christie announced early in the week when he said, don't worry, there's plenty of gas. We're not, he said specifically, we're not running out of gas. You know, that made me feel a little bit better because for, for a little while there, I was getting a little nervous about what that meant. You know, no gas, you can't go anywhere. That, that's, uh, that's a scary thought. It, it was scary because you, you, can't, you can't get anyone to come to your house to do any work because they don't have gas for their vehicle. I mean, it, it, we really, we were crippled. There was no better way to say it than we, we as, a, as, as a community, we as a, as a state, we were completely crippled. Right. You know, we, we, we went out and got all of our flashlights and our batteries and our three days of water supplies and, our, you know, even leave a little thing of gas. But 
no one ever imagined that that 75% of the gas stations would be closed and would be having lines for an hour and 26 minutes. Right. And what uh, do you, what do you know, or I don't know if you're in touch with the neighboring communities, but I know that there were several communities not too far from Teaneck that really suffered major damage. What do you know about those communities? So, you know, I interestingly, I just got off the phone with a friend of mine who's got property in Atlantic City. Um, he told me that uh, he has that he has six buildings, and uh, they all they all got destroyed. Um, you know, it, we were because we weren't able to watch the news, only able to read the papers. Um, we weren't as, as as sensitive to some of the other communities. Um, I mean, we read the emails, you know, that, that some of these communities are are, are flooded, but until you re- really see it. You know, I went out to Munaki, and I saw the flooding. And, you know, I went out to some of these other communities, and you see it. And How far is Munaki from Teaneck? Munaki is like 10 minutes from Teaneck, mm-hmm. 15 minutes from Teaneck. And were you able to talk to people there? No, I didn't. It's hard to get, it's hard to get through. The police are, were cordoned off everything. And then top it off by the, this, you know, we have five days or six days of, of uh, this whole um, power outage, and then we have to for an election for, right. uh, you know, for, for last, from last Tuesday. You know. So that was another mess. We had schools that were closed that ordinarily would be polling stations, and all the letters went out. Um, and now we have to move, move polling stations. Um, and that was a big mess. People were showing up at their polling stations to find out that their polling station had moved, and they didn't even know where to go. When I went to vote... Um, I mean, I I went to vote in the building that I ordinarily go to vote. Um, the front door was cordoned off for construction. There was a sign about something about your polling stations change. You had to go to the side door. The side door uh, now was no longer my own district, but uh, had six other districts or seven other districts mixed in together. People were walking around, not sure where to park, not sure where to vote, not sure which district they're in. Um, yeah, that it, it was a, it, it was there's so many different effects that came out of this. And what I felt, by the way, wasn't such a bad storm. You know, when you when you were sitting in the house, you know, and, and you tell me how how you felt when you were sitting in the house. You heard some wind. You heard right. The wind was a little scary. I did have I have one tree in my backyard that I was convinced was flapping against my roof because every time there was a wind. I heard a lot of noise on the roof, and I'm going, oh, God, one of these branches is going to fly into that roof. I I just, I was prepared. I was waiting for it. And then I went to every window that I could see the tree from, and I couldn't figure out how could that tree possibly be hitting the roof where I hear it from. And after the storm, driving around and seeing that people were actually missing the little gray squares off of their roofs, I thought to myself, oh, maybe that's what was flapping on the roof which wouldn't have been good if that came off, but I have no way of actually going up to my roof to see it. So I don't even know what, what my roof looks like. But hearing the, uh, the, the, bran- the branches of the tree, just watching it sway and hearing the wind was a bit scary. And I know that there were uh, people who stayed in during the storm who went down to the basement, maybe people with generators or even people without generators who slept in their basements so that they, they and their children wouldn't hear the howling. 
because that right. was that was a little you know a little scary. Yeah, my my wife and kids were certainly very scared, and 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 it's it's like debilitating when you lose power. You know, you feel powerless. Right. Uh, for lack of you know, figuratively and literally, you feel like you know, well, you can't do anything, and you don't want to leave your house. You're afraid of something knocking into your car. We had a police officer in Phoenix that had a branch. He was he was he was watching. He was just about to leave a house that had a house fire because the tree fell over, pulled up the gas line, wow. the electric wire hit the gas line, caused the fire, um, hit you know, and and did some damage to the house. Um, he was there with the fire department. He was just about to leave, and a branch fell into his windshield, broke glass everywhere, put uh, glass into his eye, ended up going to the hospital. Wow. Um, Ellie, what is the economic impact of a storm like this on a community? Um, well, I could tell you my personal economic impact, and I'm sure that it, it mirrors throughout the town. Uh, I own a restaurant in Teaneck. Uh, we were closed um, from the day uh, from from the Monday till um, actually we closed all week. That uh, we were literally closed the whole week. Um, I had to go there and throw out all the food. Um, we had some frozen items where I had to go and purchase every day uh, dry ice and ice and, and you know generator power. Um, and uh, that that was our you know besides the loss of sales, we had the loss of product and uh, the people that were working. Um, they they couldn't make money. Um, I mean, this was the case throughout the whole town. Uh, we have four business districts in Teaneck, and uh, of the four business districts, you may have been able to find two stores open. You know, one of them, there was a pizza shop that was working just off of gas and no light. And one of them was a, uh, a meat restaurant that actually got a generator. And they were, they were doing very well. Yeah, I visited a store earlier this week that was the first store on its block and to its left that had no power. While there were other stores to the right of it that had power and they were just still cleaning up from the storm. And I was ready to support them and ready to buy. And they still, they were still just mopping up. Yeah. Was that your experience, you know, throughout the town? There's still, yes. That there's this, I believe that, that, uh, it's, this is going to set back a lot of the merchants in town, uh, by weeks between all the loss of, of sales and the amount of money that they had to throw in the garbage. Um, I believe that this will have, uh, um, I think that this will have a very, not just a short-term effect, but a long-term effect on everybody. And what do you think moving forward in general, not for any specific storm, but what should people do to prepare for a storm? And what do you think you should have in your home, let's say always on hand, just in case a storm happens when you're not expecting it? So... I think that these power outages are becoming a lot more common. Um, yeah, I have to tell you, I grew up in Brooklyn, and I never experienced a power outage in my life until I moved to New Jersey. And yeah. I've experienced now, this is the, our fourth power outage. Yeah, 
So I think, I mean, I think generators are becoming the new, you know, what central air became 20 years ago. That, you know, you, it's just, oh, you, you have to have a house with a generator. But you um, have to know how to use it. But you have to know how to use it. And, and uh, certainly if you can afford one of the uh, hardwired ones, um, it's probably the better, better route to go so that you don't have to constantly run out and get gas. Right. Although I did hear, you know, and I guess this this could be the case with a with a generator of the kind that you talk about. I did hear of stories out in Long Island where there were people that had generators that were hooked up to their gas lines, you know, that cost ten fifteen thousand dollars. That when the water came in, the generator got flooded and it's kaput. Right. So that's you know just it just goes uh, with the storm, I guess. Yeah. No, you're right. That's that, that's uh, one of the risks. Of, of not having a portable generator as well. You're right. Um, but you would recommend that maybe people look into somehow acquiring a generator? You know, I, I think that uh, you've got to go through that hurricane list or the, and, and take it very seriously. I mean, meaning every item has got to be, you got to have to have in your house, whether it's from the food to the water to the batteries to the flashlights to the, to the generators to the extension cords um, to, to, to a... A big stack of library books. No so, joke. To entertain yeah, entertainment for the kids. You need entertainment. You know, um, and and uh, that's that's what it has to. You know, we're we're hoping that that you never have to use this stuff. Right. You know, amazingly, but, I have to say that I actually was washing a couple of dishes when the power first went out of my house. It went out about five thirty on Monday, and. My husband was not home at the time, and I was washing some dishes, and my kids were were around in the kitchen, and then they went upstairs, you know, to get ready for bed or whatever, and I asked my eight-year-old daughter if she would stay downstairs with me, and she was like, sure, because, you know, I'm the adult in the house. I'm supposed to not be afraid of the dark, so to speak, but I think she's become so used to the blackouts that even, you know, when the lights went out, it was like clockwork. We went to get the flashlight we put the flashlight on the table there was not a scream not a shout nothing i think the kids were very resilient in this storm yeah i mean that the, the kids were kids are uh, you know they they have those no fear attitudes and that's great uh, my wife was nervous about having my kids sleep upstairs because god forbid a tree comes down you know at one point she turned to me we're downstairs you know the kids went to bed on their bedtime she turned to me but i think we should make them come downstairs Right. Somebody actually also asked me why I didn't have all the kids, let's say, sleep in one room. And I said, you know what? They're not afraid. And I don't want to make them be afraid by right. by putting that sense of fear into them. But I guess maybe a little bit of, of wariness, a little bit of caution is is not so bad in these yeah. times. I, I think, by the way, that just like uh, on an individual level, we're learning from everyone at the storm and we're getting... getting smarter and smarter and handling it better and better. I think also on a township level, uh, we're doing the same. Uh, I mean, before this storm, we made sure to bring all the equipment up from the DPW yard, which sometimes floods. Uh, we made sure to have all of our vehicles fueled. We made sure to try to pick up as many loose leaves as possible from the ground. Uh, we created, we prepared sandbags. Um, you know, we, we, we put on standby some tree-cutting places. Um, so and what about personnel? Did you have personnel ready? We had personnel on standby. We had, we had personnel waiting. Um, I mean, right now, you know, our you know our DPW, our public works, our fire, our ambulance, uh, 
you know, our, our, our police department, they've been working nonstop. And, and, you know, thought that our police department would be spending some of their time watching, uh, you know, I guess it's not really watching the gas stations. It's more, it was more monitoring and, and, and taking care of the traffic up to the gas station because it was creating a hazard. Right. You know, when you talk about the Department of Public Works also, it's such a sacrifice. I mean, I know it's their job, and everybody says it's their job, and they say that about the utility workers as well, uh, the PSDNG workers and, you know, the policemen and all that. It's their job, but they really do put their personal issues aside, their pers- their, their families aside to come out for the community. You, you, know, you, know, how I, you know how I could sum up that, com- that, that comment? I was at the DPW first morning of the storm, and I was talking to the dispatcher, and uh, I said, I said, uh, did you get, did you have lights in your house? She said, I don't know, I had to sleep there last night. I said, oh. She said, actually, my neighbor told me that a tree fell on my house. I was still trying to get someone to go over and take a look at it. Wow. So, you like, you have to remember, yes, it's their job. A lot of us took off from our jobs last week. You know, some of us by choice, some of us by force. But even the hardworking DPW, police, fire, and ambulance that probably could have and should have taken off and because they were dealing with similar problems. And, and a lot of our police officers, they don't live in Teaneck. They live, you know, in some of these towns that you see in the news that were flooded. But they were here working and trying to help the Teaneck residents get through their um, challenging time and they basically for their job and for the dedication that they have left their family their real family to deal with the scenic extended family and, and the problem right but that, so it's things like that where people take for granted you know it's, it's just, you know, even the emergency service even the DPW or I'm sorry the PSCNG workers the utilities you know, they, they, they all live in New Jersey they have I'm sure sustained problems they probably have a wife at home sending emails to their local officials asking them when their power is going to get back up. Right. And, you know, and Ellie, even as you're in your position as a community leader, um, I'm sure you're not alone in, in being there for the community during a storm. And you also leave your family to be there for the people of the town, as I'm sure you found from your fellow government officials and, and the people that you work with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I surveyed the town with the mayor. I surveyed the town with the manager. I mean, uh, I was I was in the, the manager's car um, on Sunday at at noon when uh, his wife, who was in South Jersey, wanted to know when he was coming home because they didn't have lights. Um, but uh, yeah, every, everybody really really worked very hard to try to put. Humpty Dumpty back together again. <laughs> right. And yeah, and, and one thing I'm sure people will do now as they get ready for any impending storm is they will definitely fill up on gas if they hear oh, that there's a storm that's coming. Sure. That's, that's my next purchase. i got to figure out how to create a little mini gas station in my, in my house. Yeah, people have become very resourceful. They have figured out how to take gas from their cars to put in their jerry cans to power their generators and vice versa. Right. Right. No, I actually we got a report that somebody was selling gas out of their vehicle. Wow. Uh, to, to a small neighborhood, like it has the 
fire department hazardous material struck that to respond to that. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah, it, it is. course, what we want, safety, though, is more of a priority. Of course, of course. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and all of your efforts on behalf of the TNEC community. We all appreciate everything that you do. No, thank you very much for having me. Um, you know, we, uh, we got through it, and uh, thank goodness TNEC uh, did not lose any residents uh, in the process. And, uh, you know, we're going to be smarter next time. Strong and, res- strong and resilient. Yeah, strong and resilient. We're going to learn from, learn, learn from it and move forward. Yes, and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. We hope we've given you something to talk about. Let's give them something.